0: Want the package being delivered
1: if you listen to the president of the united states you'd know that to him and at least some of his supporters journalists well we're your enemy i called the fake news the enemy of the people and they are
0: you know cnn fake news msnbc you know that's really the enemy of the people
1: we know that according to reporters without borders or the cpj the rate of journalists being killed just seems to be going up not only that we tend to be ideal intel targets for intelligence agencies and law enforcement. In other words, we are under surveillance more than ever, vulnerable to cyber attacks and spying. This week marks six months since the horrific and outrageous murder of Jamal Khashoggi by the Saudi regime. Reporting suggests hacked chats between him and another Saudi dissident helped his killers. Think about that. Today, we've got Runa Sandvik, a former hacker-turned-senior-director of information security at the New York Times, to talk about the very hard task of how she keeps journalists safe online in 2019. I'm Ben Maku, and this is Cyber. So, Runa, it's 2019. How do you protect journalists not only in the field, but online?
0: That is a uh, big, big topic. <laughs> uh, so I've been with The Times for three years now. And uh, when I started, the my, my role was to build and create and lead a security program for the newsroom. And at that point, you are considering security basics and just sort of the awareness of the whole newsroom. You are considering phishing. You're considering travel. You're considering source communication. And then in addition to that, depending on the desk, the individual, the team, the story, the country someone's going to, you can then add on top of that security measures that they can take. You can start looking at mobile phones, travel laptops, ear gaps, and what else people need and sort of build out from there what you need, what kind of training is needed, what kind of hardware is needed, and build it out from there. But it's, like, it's not like it's a quick one all item, right? Yeah. And it's not like it's something that's... Um, done and complete today. It is a program that is consistently evolving, building out, reminding people that it's there. Um, yeah. I mean,
1: also you're you didn't exactly start it like, you know, the the South Boise Times. You know, it was like you started at the New York Times, which is, I mean, no shade at Motherboard and the place I work at, but is probably the number one target or one of the number one targets of nation states of malicious actors who want to exploit journalists, because you have some of the most important information in the entire world.
0: I would say that that goes for any media org, really. Um, I would argue that even Vice would be susceptible to the same type of threats that any other media org sees. Um, and the same goes for media works in other countries.
1: Yes. I mean, but the difference being you're getting people who are getting information that say, the CIA or the NSA would want. Not to say that we don't do that, because I've definitely, I've had information like that before. But you're, I mean, New York Times is the number one target in the sense that it's the most obvious target for some of these nation states to get information. Because, you know, as I, I've spoken to lots of people in intelligence around the world, and they always tell me, I've had from multiple agencies say that journalists, you're the best targets because you have shit security and you have a lot of information we want.
0: So before I came to the Times, I worked with a lot of freelance reporters, and they have an even sort of more challenging position in which they have the same type of sources in many cases in terms of just the the title or the level that they're at or the info that they're providing, Um, but the reporter has even less support and backing in terms of security or uh, IT support or... Hardware, someone ensuring that their laptops are up to date, someone helping them se- secure their email, for example. Um, and so you have this like challenge in that, in this sort of media space of how do you secure the people who are receiving the information? And then in turn, how do you secure the source and ensure that level of comms is secure end to end as well? And I think there are media orgs like the Times and like Vice, like the Post, um, that have the resources to have an in-house team that can help provide that support that in-house long-term support and planning and initiatives but there are a lot of newsworks that just don't have that
1: and i mean freelance reporters yeah they're often the ones even traditionally before cell phones and computers and the internet were the most vulnerable to to being kidnapped to being killed in some areas because quite often they didn't have the same security apparatus supporting them.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so the same challenge goes then for the digital space.
1: Now, you mentioned there was some sort of like, I mean, kind of getting everyone up to date, maybe some amount of resistance. Was there? Is there a difference between when you're trying to teach, let's say, an older reporter that, hey, you should download Signal, and when you talk to a source, you should only use Signal? Is there, is there do, does it run the gamut?
0: Um. No, I think, I think it just comes down to how you're teaching it. So there's sort of two, two parts to what you asked about. The first part is how do you get someone to use Signal, right? And I would say that it's more about how the trainer is pitching the tool than anything else. Because I can make the case to you that if you use this app with me, we have um, end-to-end encrypted comps and messages that auto-delete after a set period of time. But if those are not components that you care about, that message is just not going to land with you. If I, on the other hand, say, um, use this app and we have video chat emojis and you can call me for free, maybe that is more of a pitch that is going to land with you. So when you then train different types of people, you need to be able to then figure out very quickly what kind of message is going to land with this audience.
1: Right. Okay, so then how do you, I mean... Well, then how do you sell that to anybody other than, like, the national security team? The importance of it. Because, you know, I've had the same conversation with you. Like, for example, I've had some friends who are lawyers, and I've said to them, you know, when you do some of your, and some lawyers who deal with some very big companies, and I'm like, do you, do you ever use encrypted apps? They're like, no, just open, open source. I'm like, but you know you, your information is very valuable to a lot of different ty- types of people. They're like, no way, I'm not, not going to get hacked.
0: Because it's, it's, it, the, the message is too big. So you have to start making it more specific to a use case that they care about, so that if it so in in some cases, the individual may just have to ha- experience that on their own before they actually start taking the steps that they should have taken a long time ago. Um but in other cases, you just have to come up with a use case, a scenario, an example, an anecdote, a historical example that makes that land with them. And in some cases, even just saying, Um, if you start using this app with your desk, then that becomes a normal component in your workflow. And so suddenly, Alice and Bob also on your desk using this app to actually communicate about something that is sensitive doesn't stand out in any way, shape, or form. This is just the app that your desk has decided to use for comms, period. So, I mean, this
1: is a very broad question, but how important is it for journalists to take their online security seriously.
0: The follow-up question to that is, how important is it for journalists to protect their sources?
1: Right. So would you say that right now, if you're a journalist and you're protecting, quote-unquote, protecting a a source, Mm -hmm. or communicating with one, would you think it's irresponsible if you're not taking some of the precautions that you would would suggest?
0: Absolutely. I mean, if you're going to argue that you would go to jail for a source why wouldn't you turn on two-factor two for a source, right? You can't say that you are willing to take the steps that are necessary to protect a source if you're not doing that on the digital side as well.
1: Right. Now, have you ever been involved with, say, I'll give you an example. The Intercept had a story uh, that had to do with reality win- winner that, you know, some of the information that she gave them leaked. Have you ever been asked in terms of, I got this sensitive document, or I've got this sensitive piece of information, I'm going to go out with it to the public. I'm going to run this story. Is there anything in this that could reveal who this person is?
0: Um, I've been part of discussions that touch on some of the portions of that example. Um, but I do, I do feel like the newsroom has its own policies and guidelines and standards around how they vet the information that they get um, and then how to go about doing that. They don't necessarily provide the actual printed out copy or a photo of the full printed out copy that they got, but maybe they just read a quote over the phone, for example. There are different ways in which you can verify the data that you got without giving away the whole copy.
1: Now, you know, in your job, I can imagine that you also try to prepare people for adversaries that could be trying to get their information who are some of the adversaries that you've had to sort of prepare for and prepare your reporters for
0: i can't go into into details but i would say that it it really varies it can it can be everything from um like maybe at one point we know that a story is going to get certain hateful comments on twitter or we know that um a reporter is going into a um country where we suspect that their devices may be searched at the border for example or we suspect that they they may be uh, facing some qu- questioning coming back home there are sort of many different use cases it just depends on then the reporter the beat the story they're working on country they're going to
1: I mean so what do you do do you cuz i've been to a, i've been to a few conflict type areas mm-hmm. um I take it my own precautions. When you're going to, say, somewhere like, let's say, Afghanistan or eastern Ukraine, what would you tell the reporter to bring their f- cell phone with them? Or would you get a burner? Things like that, if you can get specific.
0: Sure. So what I do for myself is I have a travel laptop and I have a travel phone. Um. So at any point in time, those devices are then clean and set up for that trip specifically. So I'll have... The apps that I need access to, I'll have, the, um, I'll have a way to get the credentials for the systems that I need access to. I'll have the phone numbers that I need on that specific trip. So that if any, at any point in time those devices are lost or stolen or seized, um, I would only be exposing information that is relevant to perhaps that trip specifically and not like anything, everything I have ever done in my life.
1: Right, and that's to sort of, I guess, take the precaution that if you get to the border and they want to start searching things and they do get access to it, there's nothing to search for because there's nothing on it.
0: Yeah, or even just in a case of someone grabbing your phone or your laptop being stolen or you accidentally leave a device in a taxi. Like, these things happen. It doesn't have to be um, a police checkpoint. It doesn't have to be an interrogation at the airport. Like... You travel and things happen. So let's just, like, try and make sure that if something does happen, whatever that looks like, that the data that that you lose, quote-unquote, is contained and you have a good sense of what that might look like so that it's not everything life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs that's why united healthcare provides health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs learn more at uh1.com
1: so i know that uh, like i mentioned earlier spies do tend to target journalists because they're sort of these you know traditionally quite easy you know easy prey because we're not we haven't traditionally been known to be very good at understanding how to protect ourselves digitally.
0: You have a lot of data.
1: We've got a lot of data, though, right? One thing that I know that happens in in other places in terms of especially governments where they do sweeps of of offices and et cetera. Do you, part of your responsibilities is it sweeping, making sure that, let's say, the New York Times isn't bugged?
0: Physical security does not fall in under our remit. It doesn't does not
1: so you're protecting the networks correct so, so it's completely information security
0: information security uh, we do collaborate closely with the team that is responsible for physical um, especially around um, online threats and harassment because those can sometimes they start as a physical uh, component but they escalate online or vice versa so we do ensure that um, we are keeping each other up to date and in the loop on the different things that that happen there.
1: So do your networks, do you, do you get a lot of attacks on them?
0: It's sort of hard to answer that question because I would say that we probably see the same type of stuff than any other media org um, either sees or could see if they went looking for it.
1: Right, but I meant to say, you know, uh, are you seeing attempts at either penetrating a network by a phishing scheme in order to, to gain information or are you actually seeing you know, infiltration operations.
0: Historically, the Times has been targeted by nation-state actors like China back in 2012. And we also see the, like, whatever common AdWare scam, Bitcoin scam thing floating around. So it's like whatever it is hitting other media orgs, we are likely to see as well.
1: Right. So if one of your reporters, let's say, is doing a story that's quite sensitive and it's on, say, Russia... You might give them a, you know, a profiled security checklist in order to make sure you can secure the information you have. And this is what you might you might expect when you publish this story, et cetera. Is that fair to say?
0: So we do do that in, in some cases. Um, but that model at scale would require the reporters to come to us for everything that they do. So instead, the approach to, to training is, like, you, you establish, like, a, this awareness baseline in the newsroom. And on top of that, you can then start doing more specific training with different desks, whether that is um, the investigations desk, some of the foreign bureaus, um, some reporters that you know write about certain hot topics um, and help them see sort of what to look for, what to expect, how to deal with it. Uh, what it might look like on the screen, what it might look like on, like in their inbox, on their phone, things like that. That is knowledge that would be very specific and helpful to them that certain desks is just not going to benefit from that, for example.
1: Right, so it's like you almost... Do you have sort of a baseline tradecraft security training set up, like the farm for The New York Times?
0: So we do have the, uh, the onboarding training that you get when you join the company. Um, And that is like a security awareness, like, I would say basics. It's like just something to get you started. And then from there, we do have additional uh, sort of what I would say would fit into the basics package and then more targeted specific guidelines on, on top of that. Yeah.
1: So who at the New York Times hired you originally? I mean, was there always someone like you there? Or was this something that was a concerted effort by the Times to say, look, this is becoming a much more complex issue and we need to hire somebody to teach our reporters how to
0: do this. So back in 2000 and, I want to say 2014, um, at that point I had done work for the Tor project. I had trained a lot of reporters. I had done a lot of um, independent work with media orgs, mostly in Scandinavia, but um, also a couple in the U.S. Um, and I'd sort of worked at the intersection of media and security for for a long time, and I then got a meeting with the then um, CISO at the Times and we were just sort of talking about what like, they're doing, what they're up to, what I'm up to. Um, and he was talking about the challenges that they were having and especially the sort of needs of the newsroom and it's just a very different field. Um, and so I suggested that that's exactly what I do. So I would love to come and do that for the Times full time. So in 2016 was when they were able to create the role and I was hired for that.
1: And, I mean, yeah, Vice, we have, a, we have similar positions. And to me, as a journalist, it's been, like, one of the most helpful things. Uh, even if sometimes it seems like, oh, yeah, I already know this. Even just having someone taking a look for you. For example, running... I've had experiences where they run a background check on you, a security check to see where you're vulnerable. I mean, you do things like that. What's been the response?
0: Yeah, uh, last summer... Um Kristen and Nina on our team launched a doxing workshop um, or initially it was a doxing service where um, if you gave us permission in writing, we would spend about an hour uh, doxing you and then telling you everything that we found and then teach you how to either lock down the data or delete it. Um, And then we then turned that into a workshop. So now we teach you how to dox yourself (laughs) and then... Which steps to take, um, and so that has been really, really helpful both for our team to connect with the newsroom, but also then for the newsroom to start learning what kind of steps, what to look for, um, and also help their family members and their friends do the same thing.
1: <laughs> that sounds horrible. <laughs> Doxing yourself.
0: I think I would destroy had a lot of fun. myself. <laughs> I think between that and lock picking that we did last year, I think a lot of people had fun. <laughs>
1: So, I mean, when you you meet someone who's kind of, like, a so clearly doesn't know what they're doing, do you have just, like, some really basic steps to take them through? Like, this is two-factor authentication.
0: Yeah, so I would say, like, um, we would start with uh, passwords, two-factor, and then sort of see how the conversation goes. I think for some people, that is a really, really good start. I think other people are already up to speed on those two and they're already familiar with the advanced protection program from Google and they have two-factor on everything else and they want to talk about burner phones, for example. But you can't approach someone who's not familiar with two-factor to talk about burner phones because that... Workflow that process the risk, the challenges, the pros and cons is just not something that's going to land with them. So in some cases, you have to sort of take like your ideal, which may be far higher up than where they're at, and really meet them at their level to give them some type of training that's going to help them level up, even if it's not to the level that you would like to see them be at right away. Anyways,
1: have you ever had a, a situation where you have sent a reporter somewhere and you're like, this is a reporter, like, you squared with them like this is actually like not a great area. There's not a lot you can do.
0: In terms of what? Like, sending them linked to a country or Send them the country. Like, or... like,
1: let's say you send them to the country and the surveillance is so serious that you, it's, you're like, you've got to be extremely, this is next level. You have to maybe not use your phone at all kind of thing.
0: I mean, we do have an office in Moscow. We do have offices in mainland China. We have offices in Hong Kong, right? Um, and people travel all around the world.
1: I mean, how do you how do you defend your office in Moscow? It must look a lot different than
0: even China. To some extent, yes. and But again, a lot of it is also fairly similar. Um, I think that, again, we are teaching that base level plus the specifics on top of that. And then depending on the individual, what to look for in addition to depending on the country, the desk, the beat whatever it is that they're up to. Um, I think that what we are trying to teach, I think a good example would be to talk about the mobile apps and which ones are the best ones to use for secure comms. So, like, instead of us trying to stay up to date on, uh, you know, the pros and cons of all the different apps that are out there because there's, like, constantly a new app every day, why not instead just teach, here's how you evaluate an app. Here's how you evaluate the country you're going to, the situation you're going to be in, the meeting you're going to have with a source so that at any point in time you feel like you're in a better position to figure that out on your own so you don't have to run back to us every time because then we're going to become the funnel and the blocker for you getting your work done.
1: Right, so you're trying to enable rather than disable them from doing something. Do you ever think to yourself, I mean, this is sort of how I've seen it when I've gone abroad or even here, that Securing information and trying to keep people from prying into my information and knowing what I'm doing, especially when it comes to a nation state, I literally just try to put up as many roadblocks as possible, but I assume that at some point, if they really want to get it, they're probably going to get it.
0: Yeah, I think that um, the way that we've talked about that in the InfoSec community over the past couple of years is like making it more expensive for the attacker in terms of... Um, if the password for your email is password and you you have no two-factor, it's really easy to get in at that point. Like, they don't have to try really hard. They may not even have to, like, fish you to get access to the account. If, on the other hand, you have Google's advanced protection program, meaning you have a password, you have two-factor, your email does get a bit more uh, scrutiny, um, then that's going to be a much more difficult target for an attacker to approach. And there are then additional layers that you can put on top of that, meaning the attacker just has to invest more time, more people, more tools to go after you and the data that you have versus someone who doesn't have all of those features in place. And so in many cases, um, it's just about, like you said, just putting up as many roadblocks as you can knowing that if they really, really, really wanted to get the data, they would.
1: I mean, it's sad, too, because we could do this and we could scrutinize our apps and which apps are great and which ones aren't. But, you know, when you look at the example of Jamal Khashoggi, he thought he was communicating on WhatsApp, which is relatively known as a fairly secure chat app, funny enough. Yep. And it was compromised.
0: Yeah. The device...
1: The device was compromised. ...was, not the app. No. But again... It could happen. It could happen, right?
0: And uh, yes, Mr. Jamal Khashoggi, and I'm sorry to say that, he was contacting me via my cell phone, the one that was hacked. So I'm pretty sure that they were listening to the interviews, they were reading the conversations that we had. In the case of a well-resourced, well-funded, powerful attacker, yeah. Now what happened?
1: And these are the types of attackers that target some of your reporters.
0: And yours, probably.
1: <laughs> I mean, when you see something like that, that happens. Maybe I'm giving yourself your own job reference, but does the New York Times think to itself like, this is why we invest in security and information security as a journalistic institution?
0: I would say that, yeah, it's that's a part of it. I mean, how can you, going back to... Um, why this is needed, how can you argue that you're able to protect your sources if you're not investing in the security that the company needs as well?
1: And what's been the response among reporters since since you kind of came on the scene?
0: I think it's been really good. I think everyone's been very positive, very uh, welcoming. Um, a lot of people have a lot of really good questions. Like, it's, it's, it's clear that... Um, They want to learn, they want the info, they want to know how to take all of these different steps. Um, And so it's just been, I think, good to now have a team that is very available and very accessible that can provide that.
1: So if you can give any really simple piece of advice to a freelance journalist out there who's listening to this to secure themselves, what would you tell them?
0: I would say um, ensure that your phone and laptop are up to date, including apps, use something like um, Dashlane 1Password LastPass for passwords and turn on two-factor.
1: And don't get an Asus computer. Yes. <laughs> okay, well, one more question.
0: Sure.
1: iPhone or Android, which one's more secure?
0: <laughs> I, I strongly prefer the iPhone. Um, I think Apple has a really good track record for securing their phones. Um, and also for having a very sort of strong stance on privacy and security. Um, that's not to say that that you couldn't get to the same point with an Android phone, but I feel like there's more tinkering and config and different settings and just... Things tend to just slip a bit more with Android phones. So it's, if my, you're, it's my preference.
1: I, I mean, I agree. I had an Android phone, like five years ago, and I remember I got a pop-up ad on it without yes. it, like, like even being unlocked. And I thought to myself, this might be a problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I might be vulnerable to a hotel Wi-Fi or two. Exactly. <laughs> what are some of the threats that are facing journalists right now when it comes to the online space and, and, and staying safe?
0: I would say it, that it sort of goes back to the challenge of ensuring that everyone has that baseline with up-to-date software and apps and passwords and two-factor. And after that, talking about the different road, road, roadblocks that you can put in place and ensuring that different people are able to leverage different settings to provide additional safety. Because um, I think... In terms of the actors, we are going to see everything from um, sophisticated actors and all the way down to more commodity adware scammers, and things like that. So it's sort of hard to pick anyone because it sort of runs the gamut.
1: Right. But there are scenarios where I'm sure you might say to a journalist, like, look, you're going to go to this country and, or even here, and a spy agency is going to target you
0: that could happen if they're here as well.
1: I mean, that's what's... I, I said that.
0: <laughs> right. So, like, whether they're in New York or they're traveling to a certain country, it doesn't really matter. They can still be a target for an agency in any country.
1: And an agency from another country even being here. Yeah, that too. Well, thank you for coming in to the offices and to advice to talk about something that's very, very important and near and dear to my heart.
0: Thank you. It was fun.
1: Thanks so much. This week's episode was produced by Lorenzo Franceschi Bichirai, recorded and edited by John Northcraft. Thanks for listening to Cyber. We'll be back next week.